It is a good day. Um, y'all feel like being guinea pigs today? Sorry, well, let's, let's go with lab rats instead. You want to be lab rats today? <laughs> Just Maybe not. I want to perform a psychology experiment. Y'all are going to help me. Um, you ready for this? This should be interesting. Okay. Now, this should be pretty easy, but it is, it, it is going to require you to participate a little bit. Okay? So, here's what I'm going to do, and here's how this is going to work. And it is going to require audience participation. Um, I'm going to say a list of words. A list of words. And if the words I say evoke positive emotions in you, positive feelings in you, I just want you to raise a hand. Okay? Now, let's just make sure this works. Everybody raise a hand. Okay, now, if I say something, are you broken? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sorry, I'm not going to call somebody out in the military. Maybe I will. I don't know. Um, anyway, if it evokes negative emotions in you, put your hand down. Okay, that's pretty simple, right? You got that? Positive feelings, hand up. Negative feelings, hand down. Okay. Now, let's, let's go ahead and get a baseline here to make sure all this works. Sunshine. Okay, I figured that would work for most of y'all. All right, all right, good. So sunshine works. Now keep your hands up, keep your hands up until I say something that has negative emotions. Okay, hatred. Ooh, negative emotions. Whoa, that was slow, Danielle. <laughs> all right, this one may not get everybody, but puppies. Ah, uh, not everyone. Yeah, I'm, my hand's down. My hand, okay, okay, how about ice cream? I got more of you. Mint chip ice cream? I'm down on that one. Two hands up. That's a big deal. All right. Um, all right, let's reset. Let's just reset. Okay, let's start, let's start with this one. How about this? Uh, the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl. And the rest of you with hands down are sinners. Um, all right, I got one more. How about the Raiders existing? Ah. Uh, I was really hoping Jason Knowles would be here by now. Um, and we'd have one hand up. But uh, anyway, it's okay. It's all right. So, all right. I got two more, and then I'll be done with this, with this experiment. Okay, you ready? A loving family. All right. Excommunication. Ooh, nobody likes that one. Okay. Well, that doesn't surprise me. But uh, the reason I used that last one is because excommunication is, in a way, it's our topic today. Um, and some of you are like, oh man, really? We have to talk about it? That's because it's not an easy one. This is not an easy topic. It's not a fun topic that people love talking about. And I thought right on the heels of revival where everybody's feeling good and upbeat and I'm going to come back and we're going to talk about church discipline today. Um, and well, the reason I'm doing that is because we've been working through Matthew and that's the next text so, we're going to talk about what God's Word talks about, and I think that this is an exceptionally important topic. Now, just so that we are all on the same page, I'm going to use a whole bunch of different terms today, or I might say it different ways, but just so you know, these all effectively mean the same thing. So, if I say excommunication, or dismissal, or removal, or exclusion, um, or if I use the fun term, there was a group about the time of the Reformation called the Anabaptists, um, and the Anabaptists didn't call it excommunication, they referred to it as the ban. I'm like, ooh, that has a nice sound. Like, that's fun. They didn't want to call it excommunication, but they called it the ban. Now, some people would lump one more term in with this that I'm not going to say is the same thing. They would say church discipline is the same thing. And I disagree. Church discipline is not, is not the same as excommunication. Excommunication is the very end, the very last thing that should happen in church discipline. But church discipline is far bigger than exclusion. Far bigger than that. Um, and if we're looking at this, ex- excommunication or exclusion or removal must be the end of church discipline, not the beginning. If we start with that, we have started at the wrong place. And it must never, I'm going to say this again, uh, dismissal from membership must never be the goal or the desire of the church. That cannot be our goal. If we start out with that as our goal, we have already made a mistake. Now, there is some irony If you want to call it irony, I don't really think it's irony. Um, I think it's, maybe we could call it God orchestrating things. Um, Later on today, uh, the members here are going to be voting on some changes to our bylaws, in which we'll be dealing with something very similar to what we're talking about today. Um, And there's a reason that these things have been proposed to be added to our bylaws. And it's because we want to be a biblical church. We're going to do the best to use the understanding, the wisdom that God has given us to be a biblical church 
church, which is why we're proposing these changes, and hopefully um, some of these things uh, will, will open your eyes to why we need to make some of these changes. But we're going to be voting on them later today. Now, I know some of y'all aren't members of this church, and you're thinking right now, okay, so this is going to have nothing to do with me. And that's where you're wrong. This is going to have something to do with you. Uh, first of all, if you're not a member of this church, well, shame on you. Shame on you. You should be a member of this church. Uh, yeah, okay, I'm just going to put all my cards on the table, and I'm just going to make this very clear. If you're not a member of Christian Fellowship Church, I want you to be a member of Christian Fellowship Church. I, I'm pretty black and white there. I want you to be a member of this church. Um, but even if you're not, it's okay. This will still have application for you. This will still have application for you. Because I'm going to probably ask something like, why are you not a member of a local church or this local church? And my, my question, why not? There's a couple potential answers. First, if the answer is because I'm not sure about the whole Jesus thing, and you're saying, I'm not even sure I believe that Christ is who he says he is, well, good, I'm glad you're here. Because I'm, we're going to have to talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. If we're going to talk about anything that has to do with church membership, we have to talk about the gospel. So we're going to do that today. Um, if your answer is you're not sure about... Um, about joining a church because you've been hurt by a church in the past. Well, there's a club of people. It's called the church. <laughs> um, there are a lot of people who have been hurt by the church. And let me say to that, I am, I am truly sorry that you have been hurt by the church. Um, because that does happen. But churches, including this one, the thing is, they're made up of flawed individuals. Flawed people. Um, and oftentimes, people are even blind to their own flaws, myself included. Like, I know that I have flaws that I am blind to. I absolutely know that. But here's the thing. If you've been hurt by a church and you're hesitant to join a church because of that reason, well, let me just tell you this. You're never going to find a perfect church for a lot of reasons. Um, one, it doesn't exist. One, it doesn't exist. And two, if you do find a perfect church, if you happen to find a perfect church, please do everybody a favor and run away as fast as you can. Because the moment you become a part of that perfect church, it ceases to be a perfect church. Okay? So, please, if you find it, run away. Um, do them a favor. Now, I also, however, know that there are some Bible-believing, born-again believers, brothers and sisters, Christians, dedicated Christians even, who would argue that church membership is not a biblical concept. So, that's why they're not a part of a local church. I get it. I understand. I disagree with you, and I would like to address that just briefly before we dive into this topic of excommunication, because if we, if we start talking about church discipline, but we don't understand membership beforehand, then we're already kind of missing the point, aren't we? We have to understand membership in order to understand church discipline. So real quick, I'm just going to run through this, because this isn't the main point of the text, but I do want to run through this real quick. Reasons I believe the church membership is biblical, and I do think it is deeply biblical, um, one, Scripture tells us that the early church was counting those that were added to their number. You go read the book of Acts, and again and again you see people were added to their number. They were counting how many people were baptized and added to their number. They know that people were added daily to their number, which means they had to know who was a part of them before and who was not a part of them, right? You all tracking with that logic? So, they were adding to their number daily. Second reason, I think, is um, you read through the book of Acts, there were certain widows that were being overlooked in Acts chapter 6. Now, who are these widows? Whenever they say that certain widows are being overlooked, does that mean every, are they talking about every widow in Jerusalem? I would argue no. They know who belongs to them, which widows that is that they are responsible for caring, like giving care to. So they know who belongs to them, and that's why they are caring for those particular widows. And then one of the, one of the biggest reasons, now this is, this is a big deal to me, Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Okay, it says... That we, as members of a church, are responsible to obey our leaders and to submit to them. Now, this is important, okay? I have thought about this because I'm, I'm a member of this church. Um, not only am I the pastor of this church, I am a member of this church. That means that that is my task. I am to obey the leaders and to submit to them. Now, is this talking about just any leader in general? Are we talking about government leaders? No, because if you keep reading there, it says that they are those who keep watch over your souls. Clearly, we're talking about church leaders here, right? Look, I don't care what you, where you are politically. I hope the president is not responsible for my soul. Okay? Not the point. Instead, instead, this is talking about church leaders, right? Now, if I am tasked with obeying the leaders of the church, what church leaders am I tasked with obeying? Is that every church leader everywhere? 
I hope not, because I'm going to be one confused Christian. No, it's, I, I am tasked with obeying the leaders of the local church. That's my responsibility, is to submit to their authority. Now, nobody likes to hear the word submit or authority in church. Like, that makes us feel kind of funny, and I get it. But see, there's another part of this, and this is the fourth reason I believe in church membership, is because I believe that the elders or the leaders in the church are those that will give an account for those that they are charged with leading. You all know what that means, right? That means that as a pastor of a church, I'm going to give an account for those that I am tasked with overseeing. Now, this hopefully opens your eyes to why this is so important to me, okay? I, if I'm going to give an account for people, I would sure like to know who it is that I'm giving an account for. Are we talking about any person who walks through those doors on a Sunday morning? I sure hope not, because if so, I have failed miserably again and again. I Don't get me wrong, I'm going to fail anyway. But I have failed terribly. Like, I have completely missed it if it is every person who sets foot in those doors. No, I don't think that's who I'm responsible for. I think I'm responsible for those who are a part of this flock, those that are a part of this church. And how do we do that? How do we know who that is? Well, I think the answer is church membership. Fifth reason is exactly what we're talking about today. Excommunication or church discipline or whatever you want to call it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, he's talking about a serious sin problem within the community of believers. And he says, remove such a person. How do you remove somebody who was never a part of you? It doesn't make sense, does it? So church membership, I believe, is a, is a very biblical idea. <clears throat> but whenever we're talking about something so serious as excommunication, we probably need to know what Jesus has to say about it. Okay? We probably need to know what he has to say. So today, I want you to see some principles of church discipline. So that way, we as a church, we can be a more biblical church and hopefully follow Jesus more faithfully. And we can practice this difficult thing more biblically. Okay? So I would like it if we could read God's word together. Would you stand with me out of respect for reading God's word? We will be in Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to pick up in verse 15 and go through the end of the chapter. Now this is a long section, and hopefully we can make some sense of it. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. <laughs> then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion and released him. And forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had, uh, what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. 
So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, this is a difficult topic. Or this is a difficult subject. Um, One that for many people may bring back painful memories or... Uh, may cause tension in their own hearts and own own minds. Um, So, Lord, for that, I pray that you would help us to to see through it and see your word clearly today. Um, Lord, I pray that as we open this word and we talk about this difficult subject, we would be informed not not by what the world says or by our emotions, but instead we would be we would be formed by your word. So, Father, I pray that you would help us today as we, as we seek the truth of this text. Uh, so, guide us and direct us. Teach us as only you can. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, these principles. These principles of church discipline. And notice I said biblical church discipline because I don't want to practice something that's not biblical. We want to make sure we're doing this the right way. So, these principles. First, church discipline must be aimed toward restoration. Church discipline must be aimed towards restoration. Now, this is very important. Actually, whenever I started writing these, these principles out, I had this one last. Um, because it's kind of an overarching thing. And I thought, well, I'll save that to the end. And then I started thinking about it more and more as I was working through these. and thought, no, we need to start with that. We need to start with the fact that church discipline has to be aimed at restoration. Um, because really this theme, it runs throughout the entire passage. Everything that we just read runs or runs toward restoration, all the way from verse 15 to verse 35. Now, our goal in practicing any part of church discipline, any area of church discipline, has to be aimed at the good of the recipient, has to be aimed at their good, towards seeing them restored, both to you as an individual, to the church, and to God. We want restoration. And I think the reason church discipline gets a bad rap is, well, I really think it's twofold. First, I mean, let's think about discipline. Discipline's not fun, y'all. Um, I have never enjoyed discipline. And if you have enjoyed discipline, it's not being done right. The whole point of discipline is to make it unpleasant. Um, That's kind of the idea. Now, even when we know it's good for us, it still isn't fun. Um, It's still not something we enjoy. Like I think about, we talk about disciplining our bodies, right? Some of you are like, no, I don't talk about that ever, ever. We think about working out. So you go and, well, I, you know, I've, I've been a runner. I'm sure not running right now, and some of you know why, but some of you just, like, get, get on with it, Jared. Um, so I've been a runner in the past, and I, it takes time to build endurance. And as you work towards building that endurance, it's not pleasant. It hurts. Like, there have been times where I've been out for a run, and I come back, and my, my, my hips and my knees, they ache. It's painful, but I'm disciplining my body. I'm disciplining my body so that it'll be better than it was before. So even though I know it's good for me, it doesn't make it fun. And I've learned that even as a father, even as a father, you know, my parents always told me, like, I don't think they ever said this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I don't think they ever used that line. But they did say something to the effect of, well, this isn't fun for me either. And now I've, I've said that same thing to my kids whenever I've had to discipline them. I don't enjoy discipline, disciplining my children. It's not something that's fun for me or for them. Like, discipline is not a fun thing, so we don't enjoy talking about it. It's a difficult topic because it's not enjoyable. Okay. I think that's one reason it gets a bad rap, because it's not really fun. But the second reason I think the church discipline gets a bad rap is because it's been done so poorly. So poorly. Um, So that often, when people think of church discipline, they simply think, well, that means that we're kicking people out of the church. Right? Some of you all hear that, and that's what you think of. I know. Because I've thought the same thing. And the reason that people get kicked out of church isn't because of real sin issues or anything else. It's more because, well, these people didn't like them, so they kicked them out. Right? Am I alone in thinking that way? I don't think I am. But see, the reality is, whenever we think that way, it gives us all the more reason to search God's Word and ask how this thing called church discipline should really be practiced. Now, um, I also understand that this church, Christian Fellowship Church, was planted out of a difficult season where there was poor church discipline being practiced. Um, 
And I don't want to be insensitive to that. I know that some of you in this room have been deeply hurt by poorly practiced church discipline. Okay, so I'm going to do my best as we work through this to be sensitive to that fact. But if, again, if we're shaped by our experience, not by the truth of God's word, then we have already missed the point. We need to be shaped by the truth of God's word, not by our experience. Okay? So the truth is that church discipline is difficult and it requires a tremendous amount of humility on, on the part of both the discipliner and the disciplinee. It requires a tremendous amount of humility. Um, I, I told you two weeks ago, because Matt was here last week, so two weeks ago I told you humility is the overarching theme of this chapter. The overarching, I asked you to remember that. How many of you remember that? About three. Awesome. Awesome. Well done. Um, you guys get gold stars. I got them on my desk. Come see me after church. Um, I'm really glad you remember that. But humility is the overarching theme for this whole chapter. Even as we talk about something like church discipline, it requires a tremendous amount of humility. Not just on the person receiving the discipline, but also on the part of those doing the disciplining. We have to remember that humility is important. And one of the things that I think that helps us to practice discipline biblically is to keep sight of the goal. Even before we get to how should we practice this thing, We have to ask why we practice this thing. And the answer to that has to be the good of others. Right? And that's what we talked about with humility. We went to see what Paul said about it. And if you remember, Paul said, it's uh, thinking of others is more important than yourselves. And that's what I've been reminded of time and time again as I've been studying this passage. Thinking of others as more important than yourself. Now, if all believers practice humility that way, which I know isn't always going to happen. I know that. But if we did... Church discipline goes a whole lot more smoothly. I think that's a coherent sentence, isn't it? But let's take a look at the text now and see why we need to practice this with the aim of restoration. If you get to verse 15, the last part of verse 15, um, I've got it labeled as 15C, but you can label however you want. It says, if he listens to you, if this brother that you go to, if he listens to you, then you have won your brother. Notice that Jesus' goal in telling them to go to a brother is to win their brother. It's to win them back. And Jesus starts off with this positive. So we go to the sinning brother or sister with the hope of restoring them. And the goal is clearly to have the sinning party listen to others, repent, and be restored. Verse 16 even goes on. It says, but if they won't listen to you. Okay, because we know this is not a perfect world. I hope you all know people are flawed and broken, right? It's not a perfect world. It's broken by sin. Okay, so sometimes they're not going to listen to you. But again, the point is to have them listen, to repent, and to be restored. Verse 17 says, if he doesn't pay attention to you, literally, if he refuses to listen. Verse 17b, it says, if he refuses to pay attention to the church. Like again and again, people are given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And why is that? Because our aim in church discipline should be restoration. We want to see them restored. And only when someone won't even listen to the church should a person even be considered for removal of membership. And Jesus says that then they should be treated as if they were a Gentile or tax collector. Now, I think that's interesting. It says that they should be treated like sinners outside of the church. Okay, that's just a simple way of saying that. Now, you're sinners inside the church. I'm talking about sinners outside the church now. Y'all tracking with that, right? You're still sinners just in the church because you're saved by grace. Now, my question is, how should we act towards those who are outside of the church? You want to see them converted, right? The goal, even as somebody's put out of the church, is to see them restored to the church. We should still long to see them converted. It's still, our goal is to see a person repent and come to Jesus. Now, if we start this process of church discipline with any goal other than restoration, we will make a mess of the whole thing. And none of it will go right. Now, here in just a little bit, like I said, we're going to be voting on some changes to our bylaws. So understand... I do want to see our membership rules cleaned up. Um, I do. And there's reasons I would like that. But as we look at that list as a church, if we look at our membership roles and we say, well, hey, we just need to start axing people, we've already missed the point. So I hope and I pray that as we do that, we don't look at people as data to be removed. Instead, we see them as people that need to be restored. First to their God and then to their church and then to other believers. We want restoration and that has to be our goal. Okay, so church discipline must be aimed at restoration. But, okay, how do we do this thing? What does this really look like? We got the aim, right? I hope you know it's restoration. I've said that enough times. We want to see people restored. But how? How do we do this? How do we do this thing? Well, church discipline begins privately. Church discipline begins privately. 
Verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you. Y'all ever been sinned against? Some of you? Some of you are like, no, I've had a really easy life. I'm glad. If you haven't been sinned against, well, stay tuned. Because you will be. It's going to happen. Now, a brother who does the sinning is not just anyone, is he? He's a brother. Um, as I was reading to my kids, uh, I, don't, I think it was just last night. Just last night, a lot of times I'll read the passage and I'll say, all right, so what did you guys hear? Mostly to make sure they're actually listening when we're reading the Bible together. Um, but I'll say, okay, so what did you hear? And usually I get a one or two word answer. Sometimes I get something more than that, but usually it's a one or two word answer. And last night, one of my kids said, I heard brother. I said, excellent, great. Who is that brother? Are we talking about like Cam and Enoch are brothers? Is that what we're talking about? And they all knew, no, that's not what he's talking about. I said, okay, so what is he talking about? And one of my kids said, well, he's talking about everyone. I said, no, I don't think that's right. But that's a good guess. One of them said, well, the people that live around us. I said, no, that's a good guess too. But no, I don't think that's what he's talking about. And finally, one of them said, talking about other believers. Ooh, and now we have hit the nail on the head. See, what we're dealing with here is a sinning brother or sister. We're dealing with a fellow believer who has erred in some way. That's what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with just anybody. He's talking about brothers, sisters, fellow Christians who have made mistakes. That's what he's dealing with here. Now, unfortunately, y'all know I'm going to screw things up and I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to. And y'all will too. So what do we do whenever we see this brother or sister's fault, right? So if a brother or sister sins against you, it says, go tell him his fault. Go and tell them. Look, our job is not to gossip, to complain, or even to go straight to the pastor, right? That's what people want to do. Oh, this person screwed up. Uh, pastor Jared, we have a problem here. Now, don't misunderstand. Seeking wise and godly counsel, as we talked about in Sunday school, is not a bad thing. However, if our aim is to simply gossip, then we have already missed it. We have got to get this right. We go to our brother or sister. I've had people come to me with problems that they've had with other church members complaining or expecting me to do something. And my typical response, my typical response is this. Have you talked to them about it yet? <laughs> now, I usually get one of two answers. <laughs> I usually either get some kind of stuttering, stammering, well, uh, no, not yet. Because those people know they should have gone to talk to their brother or sister. Um, and usually that's what I get. Or I get this one. And this one is maybe my favorite. Um, I, I get this thing that says, well, I'll probably just say something I shouldn't if I go talk to them. <laughs> now, here's the problem with that. That says more about you than it does the sinning brother or sister. Sounds to me like that's a good opportunity to practice Matthew 7, 5. Removing the log from your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Um, so that gives you a good opportunity to seek what God is trying to do in you also. But we go and we tell our brother or sister their fault. And if your brother sins against you, you go tell him between you and him alone. At this point, the fault is no one else's problem and no one else's business. No one else needs to know. There's no sense in airing that out. Now, should you take time to pray? Yeah, I think you probably should. And if you're angry, should you take a few minutes to cool off? Yeah, I think you probably should. But you don't use those as an opportunity to go gossip about the problem or tell somebody else about the problem. If at all possible, you resolve the problem between the two of you and the matter is solved. You've won your brother. Problem over. 90% of problems could be taken care of if we just did this part right. 90% of the problems could be taken care of if we just did this part right. And if he listens to you, he says you've won your brother. Now, this phrase alone should be enough reason for most of you to practice this part right. Um, because I know a lot of you are like me, and I think it's been well documented that I might be a little bit competitive. Um, some of you know me well enough to know I'm at least a little competitive. And if you don't believe me, I'll show you I'm more competitive than you. Um, I like to win, and I like to win a lot. Um, I, I love to win. So if you're anything like me, here's your chance to win. Notice, he says, if he listens, you have won your brother. Not one against your brother, but one with your brother. See, the truth is, we're like, this is a whole spiritual warfare thing, right? We have an enemy that's going to try to drive a wedge in the church. Try to drive a wedge between you and your brother. And when we go to them 
whenever we go to our brother or sister and we go patiently and calmly and prayerfully and patiently and we go and we see them restored, we have won with our brother. That gives us an opportunity to win. And I was thinking about how to best illustrate this, and I thought, well, where better than God's word itself? Um, Y'all ever heard of a guy named King David? Anybody familiar with David? Some of you are. Some of you are like, I've never heard that name before in my life. Oh, good. I'm glad my kids have heard of King David. That's that's awesome. Um, Now, I I know some of you are going to say sin is sin, but let me just say David sinned bad, like real bad. David messed it up. Now, the guy that David directly sinned against, well, he was dead, so... What was David supposed to do? Well, David was actually the king over the nation, so whenever he sinned, it affected the whole nation. So really, in a way, he sinned against the entire nation, uh, the entire nation of Israel. The good news, however, was that David had this guy named Nathan who was around him. And Nathan went to David one-on-one. He came to David and confronted him about his sin. And here's what, here's what happens in the end. I can save you some of the details, but in the end, here's what happens. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, it says this. David responded to Nathan... I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, And the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. Now, some of you know the rest of that story. And you know that not all of the consequences were removed from that sin. Okay? Not all of them were. But the important thing that I want you to take away from this today is this. Nathan confronted David one-on-one. Knew that David was in sin and confronted him about that sin. And you see what happened. David repented. And it was good for David. He will not die. You see that, right? David was spared because he repented. Because God is gracious. So we see Nathan went to David and gave him a chance to admit his fault, and he was restored. So church discipline must be aimed at restoration, and it begins privately. But church discipline is the responsibility of the entire church. Church discipline is the responsibility of the entire church. Okay, because the truth is, whenever you go to a brother or sister, are they always going to respond positively? The answer is no. They will not always respond positively. Um, it would have been nice if everyone was like David, but that's not the world in which we live. Some people are going to respond poorly. So then what do we do? Well, Jesus says, well, then take one or two others with you. Take one or two others with you. Now, does that mean that we should automatically find our best friend and be like, hey, you got to come with me? I'm going to say no. No, that's probably not a good idea. Because our goal is restoration, not beating up on somebody uh, by taking someone who we know is going to take our side. That misses the point. Um, At this point, finding a pastor or an elder may be a good idea. And having them go along with you. Um, And why do we do that? Well, it's because when you take those other one or two, the goal is that that every fact may be established. Every fact to be established. See, the goal here is to uncover the truth. And the truth is that, one, <laughs> that the one who believes they've been sinned against is sometimes wrong. Um, sometimes they're wrong. Or maybe they just don't see the whole picture. Maybe they just don't see the whole thing. And that's where it helps to have some outside help. And I'll just tell you my experience. I've done this before. I've, I've had to do this before. Um, I tried to talk to somebody about a problem that we had. And I went to this brother, and I talked to him, and I said, hey, listen, I've got, a, got this problem, and it didn't end well. I went to him one-on-one, and it turned into a kind of a blow-up situation. Um, it was not fun. So my next step was to find one or, two other, one or two others, and I found some other leaders in the church and said, hey, would you come sit down with us um, so we can work this through? Now, two things happened there. Two things happened whenever I actually took that the right way. Um, First, our, con- our conversation with the one or two others, um, it ended with the other guy admitting his fault and apologizing. Um, acknowledging his fault and apologized for it. But see, that wasn't the end of it. It also ended with me acknowledging my part that I played in that. And I realized I had some apologizing to do as well. See, the facts were uncovered. The truth was uncovered. Why do we take one or two others with us so that every fact might be established? And that gives us an opportunity to be restored. So we take one, other, one or two others, not as a way to get our way, but so that the facts can be established. And Jesus goes on. Because notice, he doesn't say, well, that means that's always going to be the end of it, right? No, he says, if he doesn't pay attention to them. Because some people won't even hear that. So is it always going to work out perfect? No. So then what do we do? 
when they don't even pay attention to the three or four, what do we do then? Well, Jesus says, tell the church. Tell the church. That is the other members of the body. But remember, the goal is not to publicly shame someone. Instead, the goal is to see that person restored. And it still doesn't always work. It still doesn't always work. Some people will be dead set in what they're doing. And it said, Jesus says, if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let it be like a Gentile or a tax collector to you. In other words, if a person has a fault and has been addressed one-on-one, has been established by two or three, and has been brought before the church, then, and only then, should a person be removed from membership. Only then. Now, it's here that Jesus reminds them of something he said all the way back in chapter 16. And here it's in verse 18. He says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Now, this is very important. This is very important because who is the authority, the the task of binding and loosing? Who is that charged to? It's charged to the church, to the church, to the gathering, to the body, not to one or two individuals within the church. Um, Discipline can never, church discipline can never be left solely to one or two people in the church. That's not what Jesus says. He says that this is the responsibility of the entire church. Now, should leaders in the church be engaged in this process? Yeah, I think so. I think they should be actively engaged in this process. But should the elders or board or the pastor be the only ones involved in the process? No, absolutely not. Jesus clearly shows here that the church, the church is involved and that the final responsibility of binding and loosing individuals lies with the church. It is their responsibility. So church discipline has to be aimed towards restoration. It begins privately and is the responsibility of the church. But last thing I want you to see is that church discipline must be done patiently and prayerfully. And really, I probably should have switched those words, prayerfully, then patiently, just for the sake of following along. Verse 19, Jesus says, again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Now, I, I almost sent Steve, um, Steve a picture of just a red flag warning like that I just wanted to have it flash. Please don't do it now. Uh, that'd be distracting now. Um, but I almost, I, I can see the look on his face. He's like, I can do that. I'm going to get it. Um, but I almost wanted like an alert sign to flash. Because this is one of those passages that has been abused and abused and abused. And I'm just going to show you how this could be abused really easily, okay? Um, here's my example. Y'all, I would really like to win the lottery and have all that money. I really would. Now, this is an extreme example, so stay with me because y'all know that's not going to happen. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I, I have a foolproof way to win the lottery. You ready for this? Some of you, I got your attention now. You're going to make millions. I'm going to call up my good friend Mike Elton. Um, and I, had, I planned Mike all week because I know Mike's a praying man. Okay? I, I've prayed with Mike. Um, and I know that Mike is praying. I know he is. So I'm going to call Mike up, and I'm going to make you a deal, Mike. How about this? Okay? Um, if you and I can get together, we're going to get together. And we're going to wholeheartedly agree in prayer that I hit the jackpot. Okay? We're going to agree on this, and we're going to pray hard for this. And whenever I win, I'll split it with you. Okay? Now, that means that there's two of us, two of us, and we're on earth. I don't know if you guys know that, but we are on earth, two of us here on earth, and we agree about a matter, and we're praying for it. That means that God is unilaterally obligated to answer that prayer, right? 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 I want to win the lottery, people. Come on, support me in this. No, of course not. You all know that that's ridiculous. Of course that's not what he's saying. See, um, actually, what instead, this, what we have to do is we have to go back and learn hermeneutics 101. So hermeneutics like a, 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 how to study the Bible. We have to go back to 101. And what is the most important rule of any Bible study? Context. Like, If we wanted something flashing on the screen, it would say, context, context, context. We have to understand, please don't do that now either. Um, We have to understand the context of what Jesus is talking about. And the context here is the agreement of two, uh, two people or the gathering of two or three. It's the exercise of church authority, right? It's the exercise of church discipline. 
That's the context here. This is not some blanket statement on prayer, but instead it is a statement on restoring a brother and maintaining the integrity of the church. Our goal has to be to come together prayerfully to restore a brother and to maintain the integrity of the church. And the reason I think that this promise is given here is pretty simple. Church discipline is hard. It is painful. Again, if you enjoy discipline, you don't understand discipline. It shouldn't be pleasant for the person doing the disciplining or receiving. So, church discipline is hard. We need all the grace we can get. We need all the promises of God's power and His presence in our lives that we can get. We need God's grace and His power if we're going to get through this difficult thing. So, if we're going to properly practice this thing, it's going to require us to fall on our faces before God and plead for restoration of others and for God's wisdom in us as we, as we see church discipline carried out. Must do it prayerfully. But it's also going to require patience. You get to verse 21, and I love Peter. Oh, Peter's so great. Um, this is fantastic. It says, Peter approached Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Okay, now, the reason that's funny, rabbinic circles in that time, so rabbis would talk about this, and the, the generally accepted rule was you have to forgive repeated sin three times. And then after that, you're not obligated to forgive anymore. Three times you have to forgive. So Peter's being very generous here. Listen to how generous he is. He says, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? As many as, as, many as seven? Like, come on. Come on, Jesus. Seven times. That's a lot, right? <laughs> Jesus replied, verse 22. I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. Now, I can see some of you already kind of thinking, I need to get my phone out and get my calculator going so I know how many times this is. Um, I'm going to save you the time. 70 times seven is 490 times. Y'all, that's South Holt math. Yep. 490 times. Now, is this a literal number? No. No. That's, that's not it. Instead, this is Jesus' way of saying don't stop forgiving. Ever. Ever. Now, can we really forgive that many times? Is that really possible? Well, Jesus gives this illustration in verses 23 to 35, and we're just going to kind of see this as one big picture here, okay? But you all, you all get the picture, all right? There's this king who calls his servants to him, and he's collecting on the debts that are owed to him. And this one servant who comes in owes him 10,000 talents. And I just read to see what the equivalent was. And it depends on who you read. But anywhere from a million to a billion dollars um, are the estimates. So there's a pretty broad range. The point is it's a lot. Like a lot, a lot. It was enough that this guy, realistically, he's never going to pay this debt off. He can't pay it off. Okay? So when the servant pleads with him for time and patience, saying, I'll get it to you eventually, the king excuses the debt entirely. He wipes the slate clean. He says, I forgive it. More than you could ever repay. The king says, you are forgiven. Forget about it. Don't worry about it. It's taken care of. By the way, that's a picture of your salvation. In case you didn't pick up on that. Um, you owed a debt that you are never going to be able to repay. It was so much you didn't stand a chance. You could work your entire life and you are never going to repay it. I don't even care if you think you're a good person. The truth is, you are a sinner and you cannot pay off your debt on your own. You can't. The good news is the king was willing to forgive it. But see, the problem was this servant, the one who had been forgiven this debt he could never repay, he turned around and found someone who owed him 100 denarii. Okay? Now, again, what does that mean? Like, that doesn't mean much to me. So I, I looked it up. And we're, we're talking about 100 days' wages. Just about 100 days' wages. Um, a, denarii was, uh, a denarius was the, uh, the typical pay for a day laborer. So... Typical laborer goes out, works the day. This is what he gets paid. All right? A hundred days wages. Now, that's no small amount, is it? Like, that's a sizable, it's a sizable sum, right? But in comparison to what the king forgave, this was nothing. Like, nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. But rather than forgiving this seemingly insignificant amount, what did he do? It said that he started choking him, threw him in prison until he could pay off every penny. So Jesus, I think, gets to the point then in verse 33. He says, shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? <laughs> shouldn't you forgive others because God has forgiven you so much? 
See, some have looked at this as a way of saying, see, you can lose your salvation by not forgiving someone else. (laughs) And I think that misses the point of the text. I think it misses the point. I would contend it's not the point at all. It said, Jesus is telling Peter that, he's telling him, you forgive your brothers and sisters. You forgive them. Not because you want to, or because it's fun, or because it's easy. You forgive them because God forgave you more than you could ever pay. A debt that is so much greater than what you'd ever been able to pay. And the lack of forgiveness, I believe it really comes because we don't recognize the tremendous debt that we owed. I think that's the bigger problem. We see what other people have done to us, and we see how they've wronged us, and how they've hurt us. And like we, we we don't want to forgive, we want to get even. We want to hurt them back. We want what we deserve. Pay me back. All the while, God's saying there, don't you realize what I forgave you? You owed an incalculable debt. You won't forgive him? It's nothing in comparison? I think that means that you don't understand the grace that's been extended to you. Do you understand the grace that God has shown you in Jesus? Because if so, then we'll understand the church discipline has to be practiced not only prayerfully, but patiently. With a boatload of forgiveness. So church discipline must be aimed at restoration. It begins privately. It's a responsibility of the church, and it must be done patiently and prayerfully. So what? Well, does this mean that when we forgive someone, all consequences are removed? The answer is no. That's not what that means. There's a lot to get into. Um, I would argue that all eternal consequences have been removed. That might be one way of saying that. But I know that if as a believer I sin, there are consequences to those sins. And maybe this will help. Okay, just one more illustration. I'm going to try to wrap this thing up because I know you all are hungry and you want to go eat soup and chili. And if not, I don't know what's wrong with you. Um, so I'll, I'll, one illustration. I'll get to the point. I, I remember as a child, um, you guys are going to find this hard to believe, but I, I had three brothers and I got into fights with them on occasion. Um, hard to believe. I fought with my brothers. Um, and I remember one, one time in particular, and I don't know why this stuck with me, but I remember my older brother and I, we got into a fight and, um, yeah, I'm talking about my older brother, Brian, who's significantly larger than me, but I could take him. Um, still today I could take him just to be clear. Everybody knows I could handle it. Why is that funny? (sighs) I could handle him, but I remember I got into a fight with him and I, I remember then, I don't even remember if it was my mom or dad, but I remember one of them came and they broke it up and I knew I was in, I knew I was in trouble. I knew it. So what did I do? Well, I lied about what happened. I said he did something to me that he hadn't really done. And I knew it was a lie when I said it. Um, and I thought, all right, well, I'm going to show him. I'm going to get him in trouble. Um, so I lied. And, uh, yeah, I was called on my lie. I was called on it. Turns out my parents are smarter than me. Um, I eventually confessed that what I had said wasn't true. And I know that my parents forgave me for that. Like, I, I hope you guys forgave me for lying to you, right? I hope so. If not, i got more work to do, I guess. But um, I guess I'm hoping they did. Otherwise, it's a terrible illustration. But what I know is that that lie still had consequences. Um, You better believe I remember getting my backside spanked after that. I looked right at my parents and I lied. So I know they forgave. I know they forgave me. But I also know there were consequences to that action. So does that mean that every time we come and we confess sin, All consequences are instantly removed. The answer is no. That's not how that works. But listen, church. That was a parent disciplining a child. Not a brother disciplining a brother. Okay, we're dealing with a slightly different thing. Our goal should never be like, well, you sinned and there's still consequences, so we're still going to kick you out even though you're repentant. It's not the goal. As a church, we need to be ready to forgive, longing for restoration. Longing for restoration. But I I would argue that the worst thing that we can do is ignore blatant sin. That's not good for the church, and it's not good for the individual. It's not. So we shouldn't ignore it. So for the good of the other person, not for the sake of getting what you want, but for their good, we need to practice church discipline biblically. We should seek restoration. And what do I mean whenever I say restoration? I want to see people restored to God. I want to see people restored to their God. With sin out of the way. So we should long to see that restoration. But we should also long to see the restoration of the individual to the church. 
We should want people to be restored with their brothers and sisters in the church. But not only that, but whenever a sinning brother has a problem against you, you deal with that. That way you personally might be restored to your brother. Now, again, I understand this is hard. This is a difficult subject. And it is not a pleasant one. But Jesus promises that, he's gonna, that he'll give his power and his presence in a unique way when we practice this biblically. When we do this his way. And then and only then can we practice church discipline right. In a way that builds up the body rather than destroys it. So, church discipline, I believe, needs to be practiced. It needs to be practiced, but it needs to be practiced properly. So, let me just encourage you with this. Go to your brothers and sisters. They are too important. Your brothers and sisters are too important to let a wedge be driven in between you. Practice church discipline patiently, prayerfully, and biblically. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, uh, I, I thank you for this time. Um, I thank you for this text, as difficult as it is. And I pray that you might help us to practice this thing called church discipline. And I pray that you would help us to practice it well. Uh, That we might do so in the way that you've laid out in your word. And we might have the goal of seeing others restored. Uh, That way we're not just abusing authority. Um, So Father, I pray that you would help us. Uh, That you would teach us. That you would give us patience and perseverance. That you would give us a willingness to step into difficult, to difficult, difficult confrontations. Um, Lord, but I pray that we would do so the way you've shown us to do it, gently and patiently. Uh, so Lord, I pray that you would help us with that. And Lord, as a church, I want to pray that you would help us to be faithful to you, even when things are hard, that our allegiance would be to you. Um, so Father, I pray that you would guide us in that. Lord, I know that what we just talked about from this today um, it's only possible if we know the grace that you've shown us. So, Lord, as, as, we, as we come to this closing of this service, God, I, I just want to pray that we would see our sin. Um, but that wouldn't be our focus. Instead, we would see that you've made a way to overcome that sin. That you sent your son to live the life that we couldn't live. That he died the death that we deserved and that he was raised again so that we might be justified before you. Uh, So, Lord, let everything we do just flow from an understanding of who you are and what you've done um, and just give you all the praise. Uh, We thank you for Christ, and we pray this in his name. Amen.